Greetings, everyone, and welcome to the Medical Liability Minute. It's a podcast where we summarize modern medical legal threats to doctors in 15 minutes or less. The goal is to allow you to continue practicing great medicine with peace of mind. And I'm your host, Dr. Jeff Siegel, founder and CEO of Medical and Dental Justice, an organization dedicated to protecting physicians from frivolous lawsuits, internet libel, unwarranted demands for refunds, and a gazillion other medical legal threats. Today we are going to speak with Thaddeus Pope, and I'm actually really excited to have this conversation. Uh, Professor Pope is a law professor and bioethicist um, who has spent a great deal of time focused on a number of things, including uh, brain death and the Uniform Determination of Death Act. Just when you think you know everything about brain death, you will learn you do not know everything about it. And the law, which um, seems to give this uh, color, uh, may be ripe for an updating. A little bit more in terms of background, Professor Pope um, has appointments at a number of different institutions, including uh, the Mitchell Hamline School of Law in Minnesota, is um, adjunct professor in Australia, also leads a center or works in the Center of Bioethics, and has spent time at the um, medical school in the Caribbean, uh, Granada. He's got a giant list on his curriculum vitae, and if I spent time actually reading that, we would be out of time. So without further ado, let me invite and bring in Professor Thaddeus Pope. Good morning. Good morning. Thanks for having me. So one of the things that got my attention um, has to do with my background. So I practiced as a neurosurgeon for a decade. Um, I honestly believed I knew with clarity what the concept of brain death was. Um, I certainly have been living with the understanding uh, since I practiced medicine in the era of organ transplantation. But one of the things that was somewhat surprising, indeed shocking, uh, relates to several articles that were passed in my direction. I think you were um, one of the authors. You were, you were one of the authors on that. But in 2020, it is possible, although unlikely, to be declared dead in one state <clears throat> and not dead in another state. And this this inconsistency is a bit more than an inconvenience. I know that the states are supposed to be laboratories of innovation. Um, but death defines when patients can be buried, organs donated for transplantation, life insurance policies uh, paying off when spouses can remarry, whether a suspect can be charged with aggravated assault or murder. The list goes on and on. So what I'd like to do is get started with um, how our concept of death has evolved. And I think if you go back 100 years, it was very simple. It was a binary proposition. Why don't you walk us down memory lane going through the traditional description of declaration of death and where we are today and the various um, milestones that we hit, which changed our conception of death and how it applies to modern medicine. And this will be a dynamic back and forth discussion. Sure. Let me, if I could just quickly expand on the point you just made, which is Today, it's not just possible for a patient to be dead in one state but not dead in another state. It's possible for a patient to be dead in one hospital in one city, 
but not dead in another hospital in the same city. In fact, it's possible for a patient to be dead in the same hospital, but if a different clinician had been in charge, uh, that patient might not have been dead. In other words, there's variability in the criteria, criteria that are used from state to state, from hospital mm -hmm. to hospital, and from clinician to clinician. Uh, so that's that's just where we are right now. And, but and, to, and, and with that, does it also imply that someone could be declared dead in one state and then actually be transported to yet another state and somehow be resuscitated on paper, if nothing else? Right, and that's happened, right? So that's um, that's absolutely happened. It's very famously happened with Jahai McMath. So Jahai McMath, and we could get back to this later, but she was determined to be dead in California, then declared to be dead in California, death certificate was issued, then flown to New Jersey where she was uh, considered to be alive. And it was uh, years later, almost five years later, that uh, New Jersey issued a death certificate for her. So um, that's just a very famous case where th that ex she was sort of resurrected mm -hmm. by, at least legally, by moving from California to New Jersey. Interesting. Okay, so let's go through the history. Yeah. Um, w when did things start to change? I'm guessing around the era of thinking of organ transplantation. Certainly kidneys were the first organs to be transplanted. You did not need a dead body. We have two kidneys, but then ultimately we moved to heart transplantation. And to pull a heart out, you probably you need a beating heart, uh, for the most part, and a dead patient, a combination of the two. Right, so we, heart, it, it does coincide with heart transplantation. So in 1968, right, Christian Bernard did the first heart transplant in South Africa, mm -hmm. and then that was quickly followed by one at Stanford. Um, and um, the patient, right, wasn't dead, um, but it, it was the actual process of obtaining the heart that, that caused their death. Mm -hmm. um, so those surgeons proceeded uh, nonetheless, but what happened in the early history of organ transplantation is there were other physicians who were criminally charged and also sued um, for, you know, causing the death of the patient right. by procuring non-paired organs. And so what happened was, I guess, there was a need to create what we now know as the dead donor rule, right, which is to say, First, we declare them dead, mm -hmm. and only then do we take the organs. But obviously, when, it's, when you're talking about heart transplantation, you can't declare them dead on, car on cardiopulmonary criteria, right? So, so the, the irreversible cessation of circulatory functions was the definition of death since the beginning of time, mm -hmm. right, uh, up until 1968. Um, at which time uh, there was a famous article, really seminal article published by an ad hoc uh, research group at Harvard, published in JAMA, and they said, we need a second additional 
uh, basis on which to declare somebody dead. Other than cardiopul other cardiopulmonary criteria, we need a brain criteria uh, to declare somebody dead. This was uh, in 1968, is that correct? That was early 1968. Um, now that was just a JAMA article, so you know it doesn't have any you know formal status. It's just a, a proposal. Right. Um, but that really started the ball rolling. And uh, by 1970, Kansas, which was the first state, passed a statute saying that you can be dead in the state of Kansas, you know, either or, right? So this is disjunctive. It's either or. If mm -hmm. there's irreversible cessation of circulatory function or irreversible cessation of functions of all functions of the brain. Uh, and then during the 1970s, um, more and more states started enacting similar statutes, recognizing that there's two different grounds on which somebody could be determined and declared dead. Um, unfortunately, during the 1970s, with the states that were doing this all uh, formulated it a little bit differently. So by, the, by 1979, it was rather apparent that there was too much variability, right? So, so, the, so the way in which brain death was articulated legally in one state was different than another state. So we had seven, eight, nine different formulations. Um, so this problem of uh, variability that we talked about a second ago was even worse in the 1970s. Now, right, were they subtly them. different, or were the differences dramatic enough that it was screaming for attention? It was. It was. Well, the language. It was only. We're only talking like a couple, like an adjective here or there. Right. Um, but sometimes people would refer to whole brain death versus just brain stem death. Um, so, so the variations sometimes were subtle, but but I think people perceive them to be meaningful enough that Jimmy Carter, who's president at the time. Uh, convened a, um, a, a you know, a, a presidential task force to said, you guys need to figure out once and for all, what is brain death? Because it's being formulated in a number of different ways across the country. And if there's one thing that really we need to, we could be consistent upon across the entire United States is what it means to be dead. Um, that should be uniform, that should be consistent, it should not vary from state to state. You know, language is so important, um, and there's a good reason to have language harmonized across all of the states. I give this example just in terms of how the difference a single comma can make, and we had written about this in the past, that when the World Trade Towers went down, there were multiple insurance and reinsurance policies. Who was going to pay the bill for this? And one of the questions was, were the, were the two towers going down a single incident or two incidents, one or two incidents? And the interpretation ultimately came down to the various, and they weren't all the same. Some insurance policies um, you could reasonably interpret as one event, another insurance policy, two events. And the distinction between the two resting on a comma, perhaps, was on the order of billions of dollars. So you can see that language does matter and you can certainly imagine how whether or not someone is declared dead or not could be determined by language would also be very important. Right, so that was, um, and, and we know across the country, I guess 
you know, on a real practical level, it, we have a lot of urban centers that are right on uh, borderlines, right? So Kansas and Missouri, you know, New York, New Jersey, Philadelphia, uh, or Pennsylvania, New Jersey, right? So we have a lot of people who practice right at the intersection of two different jurisdictions. And so especially in those urban areas, it's it's rather upsetting, right, to have variability um, in in how death is determined. Um, so so it, so ni early 1980, like this this task force that uh, Jimmy Carter forms uh, issues a report, and they um, articulate what we now what we now know as the Uniform Determination of Death Act, and they talked to the American Bar Association, the American Medical Association, and a lot of other groups that had all proposed their own definitions of brain death, but they had all proposed different, right? They had all used different language. And so what this task force had done was to get everybody onto the same page. And so we reached consensus. Everybody said, yeah, that's, we'll just go, we'll have one, and we, everybody bought into it. Um, and so in 1981, that gets picked up by the uh, nat what, what was then known as the National Conference of Commissioners on Uniform State Laws, mm -hmm. and which which you know promulgates lots of uniform laws like the Uniform Anatomical Gift Act and the Uniform Commercial Code, um, and so they published it as the Uniform Determination of Death Act, which um, had a high pickup rate of among the states. So almost every state adopted the Uniform Determination of Death Act. So, although not exactly identically, unfortunately, um, but generally we could say the law of brain death in the United States is the Uniform Determination of Death Act because each state legislature adopted pretty much that law. Um, and what it says is you're dead if either there's irreversible cessation of circulatory functions or if there's irreversible cessation of all functions of the entire brain. Um, and so it's that second prong uh, that we're focusing on. So um, unfortunately, um, well, we'll come back to this, but the language, that they, the exact language that they used uh, didn't match exactly, although, and this goes back to the way you introduced the topic, it, it was close enough and everybody thought the problem was solved, right? So in 1981, we have the Uniform Deter Determination of Death Act. It's now 40 years later, and only now are things starting uh, to unravel. So it, 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 that UDDA you know, achieved stability you know, for four decades. Um, so it did a good job. Um, so this is a, a, an issue that I think is uh, interesting in the history of bioethics or the history of medical jurisprudence because it's not a new issue. Um, it's an old issue, right? It, it, it's more than 50 years old. Um, but it's an issue that we thought we solved, but we have to go back and reopen it and um, look at it again now because the, the, the slight language differences that we thought were immaterial in 1981 are in fact now becoming material. You know, broadly, um, one of the 
prongs of the, and I'll call it UDDA, Uniform Determination of Death Act. It seems like one of the prongs is um, complete cessation of all functions of the entire brain, including the brainstem. My concept had, had always been that the patient was in a coma and that every reflex attributable to the brainstem was absent. But if you take this at face value, all function of the brain, the question is, what are all functions of the brain? If there are islands of viable activity in the brain, and we don't really know that there are islands of viable activity, ha have you satisfied the criteria for brain death? I mean, one of the ways that we typically um, can identify whether um, there's function is either whether there's um, a report of a stimulus or a, an action, a motor function. Um, but absent that, and particularly as we develop greater and more, uh, and more sophisticated diagnostics, you wonder whether even a remaining island of activity in the brain would, would be classified as function. I mean, you can already see that this is a setup for being too vague, and anytime something is too vague, the loopholes take over, and then you have to figure out what was the intent of the law, and then it gets muddy, Back, which is back to your point. It's time for a potential upgrade of what was a well-intended law. Well, yeah, or you could say the same point a little bit differently, which is the law is actually maybe not vague. It's actually... It's written in rather categorical terms, right? It says all functions of the entire brain, right? So it uses the word all and entire, right? Those, those two key adjectives. Those are pretty categorical, you know, absolute adjectives. And one of the problems that, that's been coming up in the courts, uh, in, in courts across the country, is that we're, we sure are not measuring that. Um, and the point you just made is really good, but even clearer is the fact that the American Academy of Neurology, which is the leading professional association and the holder of the, of the guidelines, at least for adults, for, for determining brain death for adults, um, wrote a report last year saying, we're not measuring functions of the hypothalamus or the pituitary gland. In other words, hormonal functions, we're not, that's not part of what we're measuring when we measure or not, when we measure or not whether somebody's brain dead. Um, and <clears throat> the problem with that is um, it appears that at least the hypothalamus um, is part of the brain, right? So now you have a concession in writing in their journal, in, the neuro in neurology, um, that when, when clinicians in the United States measure brain death and determine brain death and declare brain death, they're not measuring the cessation of all functions mm -hmm. of the entire brain. Um, but that's, a, that's what the law seems to require. The law doesn't say all the functions that the medical community thinks are important. It says all functions of the entire brain. And so, one of the big problems, and there are other problems, but one of the big problems right now is that there's a gap. There's always been a gap, but now it's become more, there's more of a spotlight on it, a gap between what the law requires to determine somebody dead on neurological criteria and what the medical criteria are actually measuring. 
And one of the reasons to amend the law is to close that gap because it's always, again, the gap has always been there, but now you have, and frankly, a lot of it is pro-life advocacy groups, but they're litigating it. So they're pushing um, this gap. And so it's becoming more, the, the urgency in closing the gap is, is, is increasing as more and more of these lawsuits are being brought. Has the gap related to the pituitary and hypothalamus, has that been litigated to date, meaning that someone would be declared dead and the um, the plaintiff said, whoa, wait a minute, um, we're still able to measure hormonal function, uh, for, for example, um, the presence or absence of a period. Um, is that something that has actually gone to courts? Has it gone up to an appellate court? Is it, is it just a hypothetical activity that's likely to take place at some point down the road? What, what has been the trajectory of this? So, um, so the first thing is most of the cases have been um, what you might call ex-ante cases, right? So the reason the lawsuit was brought was for injunctive relief purposes, right? Because the hospital was planning to disconnect somebody from organ-sustaining treatment in the ICU, and the family wants to stop that. Um, and then there is, all, there is in fact, an, another number, what you would call ex-post cases, where the patient was uh, withdrawn, and now a lawsuit for damages has been brought. Um, so, so the point about hormonal functions specifically, that was, that was, that was briefed, um, and evidence was introduced in the Jahai McMath case. So Jahai McMath case was a, um, was a medical malpractice action, right? So what happened was she, um, she had a, um, this is back in December, 2013, she had a, um, it was tonsillectomy, tonsillectomy, but there was allegations that it wasn't performed appropriately and the post-op care was inadequate. And as a result, she bled from the surgical site and lost her airway and had it, and therefore had an anoxic brain injury, which then led to uh, brain death. Now the parent, the parents disputed the fact that she was in fact brain dead. And as, as we talked about a few minutes ago, she was transported to New Jersey in the med, in the med mal action, uh, they wanted uh, future medical expenses, right? Mm -hmm. Because, uh, and, and uh, which was odd because as far as the hospital understood, she died at the hospital uh, a day after the surgery. So they're like, what, what future medical expenses? Dead people don't have future medical expenses. Uh -huh. And so and well, yeah, that's right. But she was not dead. Um, and so, embedded within the med mal case was this fact question, is she dead or is she not dead, which is an important fact question to answer because it would make a big difference to the damages. Um, because if she's merely catastrophically brain injured, she could live for 25, 30 years. Um, it's gonna need enormously expensive, you know, probably $300,000 a year with mechanical ventilation and nursing support and all that. So, and, and meanwhile, the hospital was prevented from um, eliminating support. They still have to keep the patient intubated and supported with nutrition, et cetera. And that was, was that um, 
that was the injunction is that Sorry. something so so um temporarily right very um in december 2013 they um there was a lot of litigation both in the uh, state courts and then also in the federal courts but those injunctions were all uh lifted by the end of december and then she was transported to new jersey so uh, in other words, the courts in California agreed with the hospital, she is dead, and since she's dead, you have no duty, hospital, to continue any sort of treatment at all. Um, now, of course, the parents could have brought that up to the appellate courts and, drag, you know, and got a stay pending the outcome of the appeal, so that would have been another year. So um, they reached an agreement, um, which was just let us take her out of the hospital and that it's not your problem anymore, hospital, um, and that, and that's what happened. And then they took her to New Jersey. So the hospital did have to treat her against their. They had to treat what who they considered to be a dead uh, patient, but only for a couple weeks. And then the question is, um, has that case been resolved in terms of the malpractice action and the damages associated with it? Because there was that gap. I believe you mentioned four to five years where she remained alive until she had a cardiopulmonary cessation. Is that right. accurate? Right. So um, there was a, there, they, they had bifurcated the trial and the plan was to try this question about the hormonal functions. In other words, she did have functions. Mm -hmm. um, and, and the question was really, does that mean that she's not dead? Um, so hospital, Doctors said she was dead, but legally, what did what are the tests that they did legally sufficient? That was exactly the question that was set uh, for the bifurcated trial. And, and by the way, right, they tried really, really hard um, to you know to obviously not let this go to trial, right? Uh, but the court said no. They're, you know, they passed, they passed the uh, 12B, they passed the motion to dismiss stage, they passed the summary judgment stage, and the court said again and again, there is enough evidence here that created, you know, a tribal question of fact about whether or not this girl is in fact still alive. So the court was going to let it go to a trial. They they took it up to the Supreme Court of California. They said, no, let it go to trial. Um, but it never happened because uh, the case settled. It did settle. Interesting. I'm not surprised that it settled um, only because of uh, how how emotionally volatile the case could have uh, become, the PR associated with it, and the potential for unlimited damages. So it doesn't shock me. Well, but the key, but key, I think this is. I mean, again, it's all confidential, of course. But once she died on cardiopulmonary criteria, that stopped. The clock, yeah. The future, the future uh, medical expense damages. So you now have, before the case might have been six to ten million. Now the value of the case is, um, you, you actually have a hard stop on the on the value of the case. So I think it put it within the ranges that the parties were willing to discuss. All right, so let's keep going. Um, you talked about one of the real gaps, one of the real challenges with the UDDA is what is meant by all brain function, and it looks like there's a gap related to the hypothalamus and pituitary, but that's not the only issue why the UDDA may need a, an update. Right, that's one. 
Another is um, the, the, the law says, the law doesn't speak to the actual standards that should be used. And um, so it just says irreversible cessation of all functions of the entire brain. But how is that measured? What are the tests? Um, well, there was a case and it went up to the Supreme Court of Nevada, the Aiden High Lou case. And um, that case was about what are the appropriate controlling uh, standards, medical standards that should be used. And th so that's another question because uh, every, a lot of people think it would be the American Academy of Neurology criteria for adults and the American Academy of Pediatrics criteria for children and infants. But as that case illustrates, and there have been other cases, um, there's dispute about whether those are the right criteria to be using. So um, even if you think that the criteria are legally sufficient, so you put aside the first concern that we just talked about, um, are which criteria should we be using? And that's, that's one problem. And closely related to that is the fact that in multiple studies conducted by the American Academy of Neurology, they measured the fact that many, many, many hospitals across the United States aren't following their guidelines. So um, it's not clear that they are the, the quote unquote accepted medical standards or accepted medical guidelines, since as a matter of fact, a lot of places haven't accepted them, right? Because they pulled their policies, right? So they went to the top hospitals in the country, Mass General, Cleveland Clinic, Mayo Clinic, right? They looked at the policies and they, their internal policies for determining brain death don't match the AAN uh, published guidelines. So let's give an example of what that may actually translate to. Um, is it perhaps that one set of guidelines may mandate um, perhaps um, two EEGs over 24 hours that are flat? Another one may say you can use a cerebral blood flow monitor or there are prescriptive ways of doing an apnea test. I mean, are these some of the differences from one facility to another that may be manifest in, in these differences? Yeah, it, so it does get, to, so, so to be fair, right, it gets pretty fine grained, meaning, right, it's about what, what, the, what the right temperature of the body is before you do the test, you know, the, the pre, the first thing before you do any brain death test is to figure out whether there's a uh, confounding variable that explains why the patient is non-responsive, right? So you have to screen out for drugs, um, you know, in, uh, in other causes. Right. Um, but, but, but how, but the checklists are different for how you screen that out. Yes. How exactly you conduct an apnea test. So the apnea test is the, uh, final confirmatory test, right? You do all these other bedside tests to look for responsiveness in the pupils and the, you know, you put ice water in the ear and you do all these other sort of responsiveness tests. And if, if the patient fails all of those, then the final confirmation comes from the apnea test. But how exactly you conduct the apnea test? What is the CO2 level that you're looking for, mm -hmm. right? So the very, very, the very detailed level, there are, there's variations there. So everybody kind of has the big picture. You do an apnea test, but how how do you conduct the apnea test uh, varies from institution 
to institution. And, and, and is it even a broader problem than that? Meaning that uh, I think there are issues related to um, how you do the apnea test, but what about also who does the apnea test or who declares the patient brain dead? Are there differences from one institution to another? Meaning that it has to be a neurologist or it could be any doctor or it has to be two neurologists. Um, does it get granular like that at the level of the institution? Right, and yes, and uh, not just at the institution, but also as a matter of state law. So, um, first of all, the number, does it have to be confirmed by a second? Because, you know, by somebody else, or can one person do the test? Right. Also, you're correct. Um, some places will say it has to be board certified neurology or critical care. Other places will say it can be any MD. Other places will say, will, will could say it could be an NP, right, or some other type of clinician. Um, in, and actually now, in 2020, you actually have some, you have actually some places doing uh, a separate level of certification. So they would say it's not just a board certified neurologist or critical care, it's a board certified neurologist or critical care doc who got the special brain death certification to do it. Um, so the variability, um, yes, it's not just in the definition of the tests, but also in the definition of who can do the test and what qualifications and training they have to do it. So this would be one of the larger, I guess I would call this the second bucket of gaps that need attention, which would need updating. How do you go from a very general description of uh, cessation of all functions of the entire brain to the more detailed and more granular as to which guidelines control, um, how are those guidelines to be implemented, and who will be actually doing the test? Not a not a trivial problem to solve. Right. And so here's here's the I think the recommended solution is is to basically do what Nevada did. So as I described, the Supreme Court of Nevada issued this published opinion that really cast a lot of doubt on the status and validity of brain death determinations in the state. And so the legislature did react to that because, you know, the neurologists and, and organ transplantation professionals in the state were like, this, <laughs> you've just cast a lot of uncertainty on brain death in this state. To fix that, what they did was uh, in the statute itself, their uniform, their UDDA, mm -hmm. they said, when you determine irreversible cessation of all functions of the entire brain, do it according to the American Academy of Neurology guidelines. So they referenced those guidelines by name in the statute, basically then making them, giving them a, uh, an authority, uh, mm -hmm. which, which before it wasn't clear that, they, that it was mandatory to follow those guidelines, but, but now it is. Now, do these guidelines, um, as they are referenced in the statute, are, do they have the ability to be updated? So, I mean, the question is, the guidelines are from a particular journal on a particular date. If we fast forward 25 years from now, will we still be using that version or if the American Academy, Academy of Neurology updated their guidelines, would we be using the newer guidelines or do we go through this process over and over again? So that's a great question. So so actually a quick historical look. The reason no guidelines were mentioned 
back in 1981 in the original UDDA. Well, actually, the the first reason was they probably didn't exist then. But um, but the reason nobody mentioned guidelines was deliberate was because they recognized what you just said, which is that science evolves, medical practice evolves. And so we don't want to enshrine specific tests. Um, you know, that's too detailed and it would become outdated. So we don't want to put that right into the statute, right? Um, but so we're going to let, the, we're just going to be silent on that and let them leave it to the medical profession. So the problem was that that call, that, that judgment that they made in 1981, unfortunately um, backfired a little bit because by giving the medical profession discretion, one might say that perhaps maybe they abused the discretion by, because now there's too much variability. Um, and I think what the Nevada approach does is it goes right down the middle where it still leaves the medical profession discretion because you're not enshrining the specific standards into the statute, you're only referencing the standards and the AAN can update its standards. Um, what Nevada does is I think it's the actual language says the AAN, the 2010 AAN standards or subsequent revisions. Hmm. The only challenge with that, and that might work in Nevada, many other states have what is called um, it's a constitutional requirement under the state constitution. It's called a non-delegation rule, which is the legislature cannot delegate uh, the rulemaking to some other, especially a private entity, right? So because the, you, you can't just say the, 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 the way you determine brain death is the way the AN says, because then- you the why that would, could, Yeah, you could see why that would be a problem, be like delegating to a company. Right? Right, you've given power to the AAN to define the content of a, of a Nevada statute. Right. Um, so most states are going to have to do something where um, um, you say that it, that the current that the current rule for brain death are the 2010 guidelines. Right. And then you say as updated and approved, and maybe who approves it? You, I guess it depends on the state, but you could say by the medical, by our state medical board or by our state department of health. Um, so you could, you would have a, um, some way to have the new guidelines approved yeah. by a so state government blessed. entity. It's almost a firewall or they get blessed by yet a government agency, even though the private organization would be quite influential, the final checkpoint would be a government body uh, implementing a statute. Correct. Right, because of course the medical board could issue regs, the or the or the, or state agency could issue regs um, on this, and so in, in a sense it's a double delegation, right? Because in a sense we're delegating to the medical board to fill in the content of the of these statutes, and then the medical board in turn turns around um, and delegates to the AAN. But but right, the, but the the key point is that the AAN guidelines don't automatically become authoritative. Or, I'm sorry, the revisions don't become automatically authoritative unless, yes, there's some kind of blessing. It could be a quick vote at, at, you know, at the bi-monthly medical board meeting, but something needs to happen. Otherwise, it's probably unconstitutional. Okay, so the second um, major update for the UDDA would be um, to address uh, guidelines and hopefully get them harmonized across 
the country and then figure out mechanically how to get them implemented uh, by a state governmental body, correct? Correct, right. And we, I think the AAN had hoped that the mere fact that they're the leading professional association in neurology um, and that they have well-written guidelines that people would just follow them, but they've written and published again and again uh, lamenting the fact that not all that many people are following their guidelines. So um, you shouldn't have to use the force of law, um, but this may be a case in which uh, the force of law will help achieve compliance and therefore uniformity in which guidelines are being applied from state to state and from hospital to hospital. And what's fascinating about guidelines in general is that they do vary. There are professional societies that are authoritative for a particular organ, if you will, um, but there may be more than one organization that claims ownership of that of that organ, and they issue guidelines that may overlap or may conflict with the other organization's guidelines. So you can, because um, creating guidelines by consensus is essentially a human activity, you can well imagine how at some point conflict can take place. Right, but, and, and this goes to some points you made at the beginning, uh, which is, um, this is different because, uh, I, I mean, I think there's different guidelines about mammograms. Do you start them at 40? Do you start them at 50? Do you have, you know, so absolutely there's different, different guidelines, conflicting guidelines on a lot of different mm -hmm. medical interventions. But this is about who's alive and who's dead. And so the stakes are, go beyond medicine. Right. It, yes. it, as you said, it links back to property rights and uh, in a lot of other uh, legal and personal consequences. And therefore, if you're going to have if there's ever a need to have uniformity for something, it's here. And, and the thing that is interesting, and I, I just want to make this point and then come back to it, because I want to go through the final uh, updates, you know, that you would recommend uh, to the UDDA. But if it is that important. Um, if it is that important to get uniformity or harmonization of these laws across the country, why would we ever leave it to the states? I mean, um, the states are supposed to be the laboratories of innovation, and um, ultimately, um, the thinking is is that if if you need um, some type of harmonization of the laws, it may need to be done at the federal level, if it even can be done at the federal level from a constitutional standpoint. But you can well imagine that it wouldn't take much for there to be a change um, in the reading of the law from one state to another to again create these conundrums 20, 30 years from now, even if we have updated the UDDA to modernity. So that that is a fantastic question. Um, and I think the rule, this is the thinking, and this was the same thinking in 1981, was the traditional respect of federalism requires that you at least try to do it through the states because this has been a traditional state function. Um, and, and even in the 1981 report, the, the, the presidential report uh, in, the, in the committee convened by Congress was if it doesn't work, then we're gonna have to go and try it through the federal system. But let's try to see if we can achieve uniformity state by state first, um, and then only tr only go to federal if if we need to. Um, it, and, and, and that may very well be required, 
because let's say even if we could go to the Uniform Law Commission, they publish a RUDDA, a revised Uniform Determination of Death Act, and then all the state legislatures think about that in 2021 and 2022. Um, it seems unlikely that they're going to adopt it exactly, right? For some weird political reasons, somebody's going to change a word here, change a word here, and then we have mm -hmm. we haven't solved anything. So, um, a federal brain death law may very well be in our future. Uh, that's true. I, I I agree with that, and it seems likely. If we're really worried about uniformity, that may be what's required. And it may be we go through this issue with the states to ultimately um, figure out what the best federal law will be. You know, there may be some minor discrepancies between one state and another, and we use that as a learning experience to figure out what the final or maybe it'll be the initial federal law that ultimately gets updated over and over well, again. That, that's a great observation, too, because that's exactly what happened, right? So like I said, we uh, Kansas enacted the first U.S. brain death law in 1970, and we didn't have a UDDA until 1981. So we had a decade of a bunch of states passing a bunch of different laws, and then you have a, you know, and you have a lot of different commissions and task forces and law review articles and medical journal articles written during the 1970s. So by the time the presidential task force is meeting and convening in the early 80s, they have a giant body of experience and a giant body of scholarship uh, to guide them. And so, so, so yes, we could start with an RUDDA, see how well it gets adopted, see what the commentary looks like on it, see what the legislative debate looks like on it, and then that's, that's a giant body of uh, thinking that, that could guide Congress if Congress does need to act in the future. All right, we're running tight on time, and I want to make sure we hit the last bucket of concerns with the current UDDA, which would be family concerns. And yeah. there are, are two components to that. One would be religious objections to the determination of brain death, and the other one would be does the family need to give consent for procedures of determining brain death, in particular the apnea test? Right. So there is now, again, on the non-uniformity problem, a number of uh, families over the past few years have refused permission to clinicians to do an, an apnea test. So you have, these are normally pediatric cases, although not entirely, but mostly. And so you have a kid um, who drowned or had some other sort of accident and um, the clinicians have done all the bedside tests, non-responsive, and think that the kid is probably dead. They need to confirm it, and they confirm it by doing the apnea test. But the parents say, no, you're not doing an apnea test. Um, and so the question is, do you need the parents' consent to, to do the apnea test? Well, when these cases have gone to court, and a number of them have gone to court over the past few years, we've gotten different answers from different courts in different states. Um, the normal now the normal rule, right, just for context, is that you normally need consent to do anything to a patient. Right. Um, otherwise, it's a battery. Mm -hmm. So that presumptively, you would think that you uh, you do need consent. Can you do a battery on a dead person, though? I guess that's but the question, the cart of the horse. Well, you, you, you can't, 
But the whole point is you don't know that they're dead yet, and you can't declare them dead until you do the apnea test. Right, and particularly if you get it wrong and they are breathing when you do that, you would clearly have a battery problem without consent, at least unless there were other issues that were that were crystallized before that. Right, and, and by the way, since you brought that up, um, one of the other big issues is there's a big debate about the apnea test, which is the apnea test is not a risk-free test, right? You have somebody who has catastrophic brain injuries, um, and the, the argument is that the performing of the apnea test itself um, creates risk to that patient. In other words, if the, 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 the apnea test may kill them, they may not have been dead, but then by doing the apnea test, mm -hmm. you actually made them dead as opposed to measuring that they were already dead. So to our, to our listeners who may not be familiar with the apnea test, it is one of the final tests that is done to see if there's a respiratory drive and what you there the patient is on a ventilator and you're trying to see that if you can artificially raise the carbon dioxide in the blood will it actually stimulate the brain stem to take a gas to breathe etc um, but to do that you have to disconnect the patient from the ventilator which also could cause hypoxia not just the rising of co2 right so um so 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 again variability um in uh, in state law as as to whether or not an apnea test is required, and um, there's actually not even consensus among neurologists. So there have been surveys that even neurologists disagree about whether or not they they think they should get consent as a matter of uh, medical practice and ethics. Um, and, and it's worth noting that the consequence is if you can't do the test, then the patient is still alive, which means um, uh, they're gonna they're gonna stay in the ICU until they have cardiopulmonary death. Um, so it's uh, which could be quite a long time. So some of the cases the, the patient's been in the ICU for months and months and months. People are pretty confident they that the patient is dead, but they can't actually declare the patient dead because they can't do the necessary tests. So um, and it's important, I, I think, from a number of standpoints. One is a uh, uh, a justice, a, a distributive justice question, which is uh, these pediatric ICUs are often full. And um, if, if if there's somebody who's actually dead, that doesn't seem to be a good allocation of resources, not just financially, but the fact is there are going to be other kids who have uh, needs who could benefit from that ICU bed, who, if there's... Um, some a dead uh, kid in that bed who won't have the opportunity to benefit from that uh, PICU bed. So uh, again, I think this is something that could be uh, addressed in the Uniform Determination of Death Act, just to clarify one way or the other whether or not consent is required uh, to do the tests. Okay, and so parallel to the family being able to veto uh, declaration of death. Um, the family may also have religious objections and different states treat this differently, New Jersey being the prototypical state, which says that if the family does have a religious objection, the patient is not declared brain dead. Um, right. I so, think, so that's, that's so why it, people moved to New Jersey to get additional care. And that was the solution to the case in California, although California probably didn't have to 
moved the patient to New Jersey, they made an accommodation, and it it certainly did solve their problem. You know, it it prevented it it created the end to the litig- potential litigation. Yeah, I think you're right. They they had no legal duty to do that, but th- what normally happens in these cases is you uh, even if you lose, um, you take the appeal, and normally you know, the appellate court is going to grant a stay to preserve the status quo pending the outcome of the appeal. But the the nature of appellate litigation is such that that's going to be months and months and months, if not a year or more. So I think the hospital realized, um, let's make a deal. Um, uh, okay, so so correct. The, the religious exemption issue is is very similar to the consent issue, because if you can't if you need to get the parents' consent and they don't give their consent, then effectively you vetoed brain death, right? You can't declare the kid um, dead on neurological criteria because you can't do the necessary tests. The religious exemption question is similar, except that you've already done the tests. You've determined that the patient is dead. Um, and normally at that point, you would either procure organs if they're an organ donor or you would just remove organ-sustaining treatment. Um, but in New Jersey, if the patient has a religious exemption or a religious objection to brain death, you can't do that. You have to keep them uh, in in your hospital until they have until they reach cardiopulmonary death. Uh, so that statute, it's an old statute from 1991, but that's exactly what it says. Um, it's it's as if that other prong of the of the of the of the of the uh, UDDA didn't exist, right? Remember, the UDDA says you can be dead on neurological criteria or, or circulatory criteria, but if you have a religious exemption, I'm uh, sorry, a religious objection to brain death, then you can't be declared dead on neurological criteria. You can only be declared dead on circulatory criteria. Okay, so in New Jersey, a couple of questions. Do are insurance companies mandated to continue payment? That's number one. And then number two, um, as a physician taking care of this patient, are you mandated to continue taking care or or you find someone else to take care of them? Otherwise, there'd be some charge of abandonment, I would imagine. So the first, the statute specifically addresses insurance. So that that, that is required. Um, in, in any case, by the way, right, legally, they're still alive. So their legal status is you have a critically ill patient, right. but they're not dead. Um, but but the statute, but but yeah, I suppose somebody could write their contract, uh, but they're not. But the statute prohibits that. So insurance does have to cover this. In fact, that's that's a key reason why um, people want to go to New Jersey. There are hospitals in New York City that are willing to accommodate. Um, it, it, the, one of the biggest populations of people who assert this objection are, are Orthodox Jews. There are New York City hospitals that are willing to honor those objections, but the insurance companies won't pay for it in, in New York. So if they could transfer, just go across the river to New Jersey, then they could get not just the hospital's accommodation, but they could also get payment. Um, and then the other question is, well, yeah, that that's not addressed by the statute. So an individual clinician, nurse or, or any other clinician on the team, anybody can assert a conscience-based objection. So if you're if you have moral distress um, 
or other other real problems with uh, I guess treating who you consider to be a corpse, um, then the normal rule is you can get off the case so long as the hospital is able to sub you out. Right. So um, someone's got to pick up the baton. Right. So if there's nobody else who can step in, then then you are still stuck. But the normal rule, and these 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 are sort of embedded in everything from you know Title VII employment you know rules. As long as it doesn't constitute um, an undue burden to the hospital, meaning if they can just switch the schedule or switch the you know switch the assignment of which patients you have, um, then they sh then they do have to do that. Um, if they can't accommodate your objection, then then you kind of don't get to assert it. Um, interestingly, this is probably outside our scope, but there are some new uh, Trump administration conscience rules that um, would would further empower individual clinicians to assert conscience-based objections in, in a more in a way that they're not currently able to do that. But those uh, those regs are are currently enjoined. And, and they're on appeal before the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Second Circuit. So how would the updated um, UDDA accommodate religious objections? Would it touch it or leave it alone? None of the above? So that's that's a great question. So on that one, so, so I worked with a group of neurologists um, on crafting a proposed uh, UDDA. Mm -hmm. On that one, that's that's a big problem, right? Because it's that the, the idea of religious exemptions is not unique to the UDDA, right? It applies to the UDDA, but people assert religious exemptions to vaccinations and a lot of other things. And so on that one, um, we didn't craft specific language that would go into the UDDA, um, but we recommended that there be that a uh, that another task force be convened to look into that, the answer to that question. So that that one was maybe too complicated um, for us. And maybe we, we didn't consider that we had the expertise in moral and theological and other domains to, to offer specific language on that one. So we said, but what, we're, what we did instead was to call for, to, to issue the call that a broader uh, multi-professional committee be convened to answer the question. So let's wrap up. I know you've got a class that's starting in a few minutes at Dartmouth. You're doing that online. Why don't we wrap up? And if you could just summarize what a better UDDA would look like um, as model legislation to be picked up by all 50 states. I know you've written extensively about that, but for our listeners, yeah. why don't you summarize? And by the way, I'd love to have you back. I I think that I could have spent two and a half hours on on this topic alone. So I'm I'm hoping that you will you will come back and and we can speak at even greater length on this and other topics. Sure. Um, so the current UDDA merely says that uh, you're dead if clinicians measure that there's been irreversible cessation of all functions of the entire brain. Um, a a new revised Uniform Determination of Death Act. Um, would clarify um, that it doesn't actually need to be all functions of the entire brain because we're not now measuring that. Nobody really thinks we should be measuring that. Um, and, so, and so therefore the, the new UDDA would 
clarify that it doesn't need to be hormonal functions because we're not measuring the cessation of hormonal functions. And so the, the revised UDDA would clarify that we don't need to measure that. The revised UDDA would clarify that we don't um, need parental consent to administer the tests. And the revised UDDA would clarify which guidelines clinicians should use when they're measuring cessation of all functions of the entire brain. Um, the, the guidelines that generally are widely accepted are the American Academy of Neurology criteria for adults and the American Academy of Pediatric for children. Um, and the revised UDDA would just reference those guidelines explicitly by name in the statute because that would elevate their authoritativeness um, mm -hmm. and, and, and reduce the variability in the guidelines that are being followed right now from institution to institution. Well, we may not have had a, um, a harmonized description of brain death across the country. I'm absolutely positive that every person listening to this learned something today. So I can't thank you enough for joining us. I'd like to include the references to the two articles that you described, one of which is determination of death by neurologic criteria in the US. I believe that was in current topics in health law. I'll put that reference in our show notes. And there's yet another article, which I'm looking at it here. It's time to revise a uniform determination of death act. I'm also, that's from the annals of internal medicine. Both of these are excellent articles, by the way, I typically underline parts of articles to come back to things that I think are important. I actually ran out of ink. I had underlined <laughs> almost everything in here and I, I thought it may be more efficient to just underline what I didn't want to underline. But in any event, this is a very, uh, readable article. It's very detailed. It goes over the history. I can't recommend it enough for anyone who has ever seen uh, or declared a patient as brain dead. Anyway, uh, Professor Pope, thanks so much for joining us. We will have you back. All right. Thanks for having me. It was fun. Thank you. And with that, we're at the end of our broadcast. Thanks for joining us. In closing, a few messages. If you're an existing member of medical or dental justice, and you find yourself on the receiving end of a medical legal threat, please contact us at 1-877-MED-JUST. That's 1-877-MED-JUST or 633-5878. Our STAT hotline is a service offered to all current members. It's designed to get your urgent medical legal questions answered ASAP. Members can also access a plethora of exclusive medical legal resources by logging into their members-only page, which can be accessed by our website, medicaljustice.com. Now, we want to protect as many doctors as possible. If one of your colleagues is in trouble, please refer him. When a current member of Medical Justice refers a colleague and that colleague becomes a member, you both receive a month of free protection. To refer a colleague, write to us at infonews, that's I-N, Epizen Frank O, news, at medicaljustice.com. That's infonews at medicaljustice.com. Now, if you're not an existing member of medical or dental justice, but want to bulletproof your practice from medical legal threats, our admin, Wendy Cates, is your best resource for information about our protection plans, implementation best practices, and pricing models. Wendy can be reached directly at 
358-5587. We offer discounts for large groups and protect doctors of all specialties in all states. Now, before we close, one last request. If you enjoyed this episode, please write a review on your preferred podcast provider and share our podcast with your colleagues. Reviews help maintain our podcast visibility, which in turn helps us reach a broader audience. This helps us protect more doctors. Thank you for joining us this week. We hope you'll join us on the next episode of the Medical Liability Minute.